the way I kind of always saw it is, is what my big lesson is that if you tell your body is like this biological vessel that's connected to all of you, and if you force it and to, to go, it will go. Mm. And there's nothing telling you you can't do something other than like your own free will and desire to do it. And as long as you're not afraid, as long as you don't fear or you don't fight or flight or do any of that, you can come up and achieve pretty much anything that you that is in the realm of possibilities. Well, good day there, gang. Welcome back to another episode of Adventure Fit Radio. This week on the show, we had, well, we had uh, myself and we, uh, we had Mac interviewing Michael Wood Jr. So Michael Wood Jr., you'd say, I actually found out about uh, the great man through uh, a podcast he did with uh, Aubrey Marcus, is someone else I, I follow, and I just found it deeply fascinating. And we got in touch with him, Bill. Got in touch with him um, a few months, I believe, uh, prior to our to our podcast, and um, it was actually only in you know the weeks before um, realizing that um, you know that I was going to be uh, having a chat to him that I started researching him, and um, he's a fascinating character, a really fascinating character. He was in the United States Marine Corps up until about uh, two thousand one, from memory, um, and then he joined the Baltimore Police Department. But I think his biggest claim to fame was. His book, Crime and Punishments in the 21st Century, which is, it just gives a very, uh, not exposing, but um, a really great insight into, uh, into the police department in the, um, in the United States. And so he, he, he was actually himself in the Baltimore Police Department. He served in patrol and um, was in narcotics and things as well, which is really fascinating stuff. But um, I strongly recommend you have a check out his book. So it's Crime and Punishments in the 21st Century by Michael Junior Wood, and I won't um I won't give too much more away, but uh yeah, really good show with uh with Michael Junior Wood and uh, sorry Michael Wood Junior, <laughs> uh, it's a little early here, and uh, and myself and Max. So guys, this uh, this show is brought to you by True Protein. So True Protein, a supplements a, a supplements um, little store there. Well, it's an online store, excuse me, um, in Australia that we got ro- got we got we got rocking. Uh, use the code ADVF for 10% off um, everything, actually, at uh, trueprotein.com.au. I'm uh, truly just a fan of their chocolate-flavored protein. I'm a pretty simple bloke, but uh, it seems to do the trick for me, and um, I think anything that tastes good is is worthwhile in my eyes. So ADVF for 10% off uh, at trueprotein.com.au. Guys, we are also sponsored, and by sponsored, I mean brought to you by, and by brought to you by, I mean sponsored by, Audible. <laughs> Audible is something that Bill and I couldn't talk, uh, couldn't speak highly enough of. Um, Mac as well, I believe. Um, we've been uh, using it for ever since we really started the show, actually back in 2016. Uh, head to the webpage, guys, if you type in www.audibletrial, that's A-U-D-I-B-L-E trial.com forward slash ADVF radio. You can sign up for a monthly subscription for about $16 Australian and you can get one free credit a month there. And uh, just as a sneaky plug, my book actually, Yes, I'm Fine, Just Tired, will be coming out uh, to Audible as one of the outlets um, in the next couple of weeks. So that should be really exciting. So if you do want to do it, get uh, obviously number one, get uh, Michael Michael Wood Jr.'s book, Crime and Punishment, but also you can have a sneaky look at Tom Ahern there too. <laughs> um, and finally, guys, we have a really cool ton of trips coming up with uh, Adventure Fit Travel. Um, we have a code. We have 10% off trips if you use radio, which is our code. So head to www.adventurefittravel.com. 
I'm really looking forward to Iceland 2.0. Um, that's with me, myself, and um, yeah, jump uh, jump on the website and have a look at uh, all the cool stuff we have there, guys. So, uh, hope you enjoy the show. I'll speak to you in a bit. Bye bye. Now, before we do this, let's go over the ground rules. Rule number one: no touching of the hair or face. This is a it's a very special show because it's uh, it's a um, it's with my good friend Matt. Welcome, mate. Thanks, brother. Here we go. We're back. We're on. <laughs> it's good. I'm loving it. All right, and we are we are sitting here with Michael Wood Jr., um, which we will get into. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, brothers. Sweet. All right, mate. Well, um, feels weird, kind of like introducing myself doing the tribute. <laughs> but uh, Matt, do you want to introduce me, mate? Uh, this is uh, Tom doing the tribute. <laughs> Sweet. All righty, mate. Here we go. Greatest, the best guest in the world. <laughs> Michael. <laughs> Long time, me and my friend Matt here. We was thinking about, uh, guess to have on the chat. Then all of a sudden, there shined a brainstorming thought. In the middle of Max's fucking brain. And Max said, Why don't we get the police officer guy from Baltimore? And there it was. I got a tickle in my pants. Then my face went numb. Fuck, here we go. Okay, so he emailed you right off his chest. And it just so happened to be. <laughs> you serenaded me to one of my biggest pet peeves. Not from Baltimore. Yes. Yes, I am. Oh fuck! I'm sorry, mate. I'm sorry. But you know, I'm playing devil's advocate. Of course, of course. <laughs> Mates, welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you. How so, do you uh, How do you like that title? I love Australia. <laughs> have you been here before? No, but we get to enjoy everything now. So now that we have Netflix, we have ABC. 
So we'll get all your shows and stuff like that. And your shows are great. Like, my biggest one lately is Glitch. Oh, yeah. Do you know what that show is? Dude, I'm fucking in Glitch. I'm literally in Glitch. I was an extra in that show. No way. Dude, uh, legit. Like, do you... Okay, have you seen the episode where it's the it's the young kid... Um, he was... He was the army kid. Um, do you remember the army kid? Uh, the boy that... In the First World War. He was in the First World War. Charlie, Charlie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you remember the scene when he's, um, he's, um, he pushes his mate to go into the brothel? Have you seen that yeah, episode? Dude, I'm... Yeah, they're fighting. Yeah, I'm literally in that scene. I'm in that scene. I'm, I'm gonna go back and look. That's, like, one of my favorite shows of, like, the <laughs> juxtaposition between, like, America and the rest of the world. Mm. Because the very start of that show, when he is, he's going through the graveyard. So, uh, I mean, anybody who doesn't know, set stage of the show, there's a cop and these people come out of graves just kind of coming back to the way that they were when, when they died and suddenly they're mm. finding a life. But the, this cop goes and he responds to the graveyard and people are fucking crawling out of graves <laughs> naked. And this dude's like, hey, do you need help? Hey, hey guys, um, does anybody need assistance? I have clothes on my house, please. And if this was an American cop, dude, there would be fucking bodies everywhere. Yeah, sure. <laughs> the first thing that an Australian cop in Australian society is like, yeah, this 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 deputy, he has to go help everybody. Worst <laughs> dog. Yeah. You know, in our context, that, those those people would never make it out of that graveyard. Man, I think we're just too dumb to realize what's going on. Zombie? Man, have a beer. Yeah, <laughs> everything's having a beer. Yeah, we want to be we want to be friends with everyone. Yeah. <laughs> well, it works. Uh, I I think uh, life in the big red does work much better that way. Good. <laughs> So, mate, how do you uh, how do you deal with the title being just the cop from Baltimore? What would you rather be known as? Well, I don't know shit because I was a cop. A lot of people are cops. There's millions of them, and we're all generally morons because we're pawns in a system who don't really know what's going on and don't want to see what's going on. Who wants to see the bad that you're doing or, or, or that your career might not be what you expect it to be? And then if you face that issue, you're talking about quitting and maybe losing your pension. You can't stand up for your family. So we want to be in denial. The only reason I figure this shit out is because I went and I got an education and trying to actually work into scientifically what was happening and what we were doing. So, I mean, being a police management scholar is the only reason I know crap, and it's the only reason why anybody should listen to me. It's not because I was an enforcer. That gives me a perspective, mm. but it doesn't provide any answers. For sure, man. Um, so let's just take the, um, the listeners back right to the beginning. So let's, um, do you want to just give us a brief um, intro about who you are and, and what you did and like if, even, you know, predating your uh, time in the, in the Marine Corps? Sure. So, I mean, I was a poor kid. I grew up in a mixed race neighborhood very much to like kind of how uh, ghetto environments or, or poorer environments are in, in not just the, like the city heart, but right outside of it. And those are mixed races. They're kind of all over the world. You'll, you'll know those type of neighborhoods where we're poor, but we're not like city kind of culture. It's different. There's really different cultures. So I was kind of in that separated from the city kind of life. I watched cops. I thought it would be cool to go do that kind of stuff. I wanted to be the good guy, the hero, and I wanted to have all those car chases and all that fun shit. So uh, when you're a member of a press class anywhere in this world, the easiest way to ascend out of being in a press class is to go ahead and start being a mercenary and killing for the oppressors. True. And we don't realize we're doing that, but that's what we do. So uh, as I grew up and I saw more of the world, I'm like, ah, what a 
go do, I want to help, I want to do it a good way, and I'm an alpha male that knows nothing but, you know, dumb alpha male shit. Chicks! So, how do I go do that? I go into the Marine Corps, I go into policing or something like that, I can do good while still being a moron male. So, I go into the Marine Corps, and the Marine Corps was, I mean, a lot of people have, I, I signed the contract at 16, I left when I was 17, um, I wanted to get out of poverty, I wanted to go and try and explore a different new life, and whatever I had to do to do that, I was willing to do that, and uh, when I was there, I got everything that I asked for, I ended up in a unit called the Fleet Anti-Terrorism Security Team, that does like mm. nuclear capture missions or rescues embassies if something happens to them, and four is deployed around the world, I love the unit it was great those four years i was done i wanted to go back home and that meant i ended up being a police officer in baltimore and whether you're even talking about whether i mean yeah uh, like dude i did it because it was fun and i uh, that's really not to help people. Like I was like, yeah. go save the world, help people. Like I wanted a good job that was fun, and I chose the Marine Corps because I wanted to do it the hardest, most most of, you know, energetic way, and get into the shit. And so when I went policing, I wanted to get into the shit too. So I went in Baltimore, which everyone paints as being the shit. You know, I saw yeah. the wire growing up and everything. So yeah. I wanted to work in the wire, and when I went to Baltimore. That's where they put me. My first post was literally in West Baltimore, on the very block where Freddie Gray ended up being killed and you see those videos of him being carted away and so that was pretty much my first idea of policing like I was just mm. transferring my skill of being a mercenary uh, a blind mercenary essentially I didn't realize it at the time and to kind of doing the same things that I was doing abroad and did that back home where essentially it's either listen to me or I'll kill you yeah exactly yeah and mate um just to, on a quick tangent I mean Hell Week is something that's always fascinated me. Like, I just, I've seen the documentaries and all this sort of stuff. There's, there's a documentary that I watched um, that talks about the SAS here. Do you want to just quickly tell us about that? Like, is it, is it, is it hard? Like, as hard as they say? Um, okay, so a basic principle that I, I kind of believe is that the military doesn't, I mean, it does train people muscle memory, but they think that they're training elite combat capable soldiers. Mm. And I don't think that actually happens anywhere in the world. What I think is truly occurring is that this is a selection process of figuring out which people don't have a, pre- a genetic predisposition to fearing physical violence. Right. So because you go through all these stresses and these trials, the people that actually make it through are just because they, they stay calm, they do the smart thing under, under pressure, they don't have a fight, flight, or fear response yeah so really i never had any fear fear wasn't a thing that i've ever experienced my whole life i'm afraid of emotional damage but not physical fear so when i went out and i do things like hell week and you do these grueling different trading requirements i mean i don't know the way i kind of always saw it is is what my big lesson is that if you tell your body is like this biological vessel that's connected to all of you and if you force it and to to go it will go Mm. And there's nothing telling you you can't do something other than like your own free will and desire to do it. And as long as you're not afraid, as long as you don't fear or you don't fight or flight or do any of that, you can come up and achieve pretty much anything that you that is in the realm of possibilities. Mm. And do you have a do you have a mantra or something that you say to yourself that you can tell your body to keep going? 
Yeah, I mean, I actually visualized it like the times I started doing that. I started visualizing it like a machine. So if you think that like a machine's leg is pumping when you don't want to go any more steps in that 15 miles, I mean, I'm not even a big dude. So when I was carrying all that infantry equipment, like that shit's happening. <laughs> so, but it was like, if you tell your body to step, it's not even like a robot where there's one piston. Like I have multiple pistons that are working and telling it. So if you just, like I was just felt if you just focused and visualized your, your leg is like as that machine taking its next step forward as long as you tell it to, like even if it's pain, pain is just a sensory thing telling you that one of those muscles, one of those pistons isn't working yeah. right. It's just communication. For sure, yeah. Do you know what? It's interesting. That, that, like, that sounds crazy. I know. <laughs> Dude, you sound like a lunatic. <laughs> it's, um, it's interesting because when I, I was walking to uh, Everest Base Camp twice and um, uh, looking back or whenever you're fresh, you always have these, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to last the whole time. Or, and you look at all these seal fits and they're like, you know, they're treading water in ice for three hours and stuff like that. And you're like, yeah, I'll do that. Um, but then in the actual moment when you're sleep deprived and it's cold, uh, when I was trekking to Everest, my little mantra was, um, one bite at a time. And it came from like, how do you eat an elephant? And you've got this massive thing in front of you and how do you eat it? It's just one bite at a time. And for me, that, that one bite at a time turned into one step at a time. And it didn't matter how big or small the step was, as long as I kept taking one at a time, you eventually got there and it took your mind off the pain, um, which is, which is cool. But what do you do when you're mentally strong now? You, you've had a nice sleep. You, you know, you're sitting in your nice booth there and you, <laughs> you, you're looking so damn pretty and you're styling your hair for us. I wish you were here. <laughs> um, what, what do you do when you're sleep deprived and you're cold and you're at that breaking point? What can you tell our listeners, um, you know, something to, you know, because a lot of our uh, listeners, you know, go through tough workouts and obviously through tough times. Uh, what's something that you can sort of inform them on that kept you going? Well, I mean, I do think every single person's body is extremely different in what they're capable of and what their signals are. The only thing that I really try to do, I would say, is separate what these things are, their communication. Like, you don't actually have an injury or, or something. Like, you're, the world's not happening. Like, that pain, it's not even real. It's an interpretation. It's your body telling you something. Now, what that's telling you is something that you need to learn about yourself and what that means but I think a lot of people dramatically over overtrain because they get this idea that work equals success or effort equals success and especially with pushing your body that's completely not true you want to get to the point where you tear a muscle but then if it's torn you must stop you know you're, you're only going to do further damage if you do push yourself saying that you can't do it. now if it's your life and your life's on the line and you have to fucking do that march I'm telling you your body can do it yeah but you know use those things when you have to Otherwise, you should be preparing yourself for that time when you may actually need it. You don't actually need it to show off your bro in the gym and you can put up 280 and fucking throw your spine out. That's foolishness. That's that's you know that's broness. Don't don't fall into the broness. Be a, a smart soldier and a smart warrior. Dudes that are six foot four and 240 pounds make shitty soldiers, and they're not going to win any real combat fights. Mm. They might win in a ring, but that's not even like what combat is. And do you yeah. find that that's a lot to do with ego as well, moving from the Marine Corps into the, you know, the police force where you're trying to battle so many different egos on different levels? How did you deal with that? 
Yeah, no, I totally agree with you in, in that aspect that you are dealing with a lot of egos, but I think there's like the mantra that always remains true that the one who's talking the most really isn't the one that you need to worry about. So it always seemed to be to me to like focus on the core issues of what's going on. So if somebody is in that state where they're aggressive, then you need to talk to them on that state. And that's not to be more aggressive, you know, especially being a cop. It is my job to resolve the situation, not to win the fight. Those are very different things. This is, depends where I am and what your mission is and the actual goal of, of whatever your function is as a combat. Instead of getting like, I knew that the guys on the street were kind of in that bro masculinity thing too but if you're talking and you're into that you actually don't know what the fuck you're doing because any real fighter will tell you that you don't really want to be in a street fight because once you've been in enough fights you know that anyone can win any fight and so you would look for alternatives to the actual fight so I think as an elite trained marine or any of these elite units like force recon and marine corps or any of the the marine units that you guys have they were good so did the British ones too that you're kind of talking about a mentality that is looking to win but not get the ego boost I think yeah. when you've been through enough shit that you you kind of get put in your place uh, when it comes to having that ego if you've been around enough people that are in elite statuses you've been bitch slapped enough to know that that's, that's possible at any point in time so use your brain before you use your body I think um, I think for me like a really good thing to in terms of the ego here is that understanding of the balance, you know, to have confidence and humility at the same time. And I think for me, when I think about my ego and I think about the influence it plays on the direction of my life, I, I want to make sure that I'm constantly trying to keep myself in check to when I pursue an ambition that doesn't make me arrogant or doesn't make me feel like special, I'm better than anyone else, but there is still an element of confidence there. But then at the same front, I don't want to fall into something that I'm doing in response to fear as well. So I want to make sure that I'm, you know, I'm keeping that sense of humility so that I'm confident, but humble, but also at the same time, I'm not doing anything to hide away from a fear stimulus. And it's interesting you said before, when you were going through the hell week thing, um, that understanding of like not having any fear, I think something that's really helped me in life is actually understanding where my fear manifests itself in different aspects of my life and then actually knowing how to work through those challenges and know, you know, actually there's a tiger on my fucking bed. I probably don't need to do something about that now, you know. Is Did you find that we can probably move away from the hell week now, you know, and all that sort of stuff, but when you moved into the, the police force, did you... Did you feel like people had a good understanding of that emotional intelligence or was there real, that was, you know, that Max talking about, was that, that element of ego still pretty prevalent? Oh, well, I, I mean, I don't want to fall into stereotyping cops, but I think that a lot of stereotypes come from some truth. Yeah. So you end yeah. up, I think, in policing with um, less than 10% of people who have gone into the job kind of with the mindset that this is something that um, is scary but not necessarily dangerous and is like an exercise of restraint. Like like a, a, a soldier on the streets of America, his life has to be less valuable than the citizens. That's yeah. kind of what the role is. And if you can view yourself through that lens, you'll be okay. Mm. But then the other like 90% are between people who were bullies and people who just want a good job. 
and the people who just put a good job, they don't do shit. And yeah. the, the people who were bullies, they seem to make the small percentage that's kind of doing the American ideal, which I disagree with the American ideal of policing. But the ones that are trying to do that ideal, I think that their jobs become almost impossible because of those other 90% that are are, uh, are either a hindrance or aren't doing anything. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Mate, in, um, I suppose let's get straight into the, the chase. I suppose in 2014, you were, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that's when you made your first public comment about the wrongdoing in the, the police force. What sparked you to go public about this and, and what's happened since then? And maybe even give people a, a backstory on, on what it was you saw and, and a bit of context behind the content. Sure. Um, you definitely will have to like kick my ass back in gear and scare me back online because I'm not going to remember all that. <laughs> so, I mean, nothing is ever like I, I, we associate change with like these dramatic events, but really psychology says that that's not really what happens. These things are like slow progresses and we just become aware of them in these traumatic events or the, these big events. So it definitely goes back a long time when I was probably when I about when I was a detective and started realizing that the drug war was a fruitless thing that I thought was very harmful. I thought my role being a, a major case narcotics detective was definitely making the neighborhood worse because I began to see it without them knowing I was there. Mm. And the prejudice and the changing of you as an instrument being there is like kind of all throughout science. We're never actually measuring something properly because our presence messes up the reality of the situation. So I was always trying to figure out like a professional issue. I thought we had a professional problem. We weren't doing the job good enough. So my bachelor's degree is in criminal justice. And then I started focusing on improving the professionalism. I wrote a guide trying to do perfect policing and best practices that I put out and published throughout the, the agency throughout the United States. It's still out there. People still buy the thing. And I, I then started to like pursue my master's degree. I realized we had a management issue, so I switched my master's degree over to management, trying to figure out where we had like these disincentives and incentives misaligned from like the goals of policing. So I was kind of looking at it educationally, trying to break it down. But I also got retired. I got put uh, retired out of the agency just because I had an injury. I didn't have. To, I didn't quit policing because of some moral high ground. I would have stayed and got my pension. Come on. <laughs> I uh, I ended up being retired out because of a medical injury and kind of got more focused into it at that time. Um, Black Lives Matter was kind of rising, so we were becoming more aware of the situations yep. of police violence being in our face with cameras and stuff like that around. And then uh, I, I, I kind of still remember the day quite distinctly when I, I lived in Pennsylvania at the time. And I watched a YouTube video of Tamir Rice being killed in Cleveland. And Tamir Rice was a 12-year-old boy mm. who was standing at oh a, uh, a park playground area, like a gazebo, and was shooting a uh, little BB gun at like trees and stuff like that. And somebody called the police. The police arrived. They jumped out of the car and killed him right away. They didn't even have the gun out or anything like that. He just had it on him. They jump out, kill him, don't render medical aid, do everything possibly wrong in policing that there could be wrong. And this is talking about a 12-year-old boy yeah. who cops got out murdered. And then the police and the unions were like defending this action. And there's nowhere in best practices, there's nowhere in training, there's nowhere in tactics or anywhere that says you behave this way. Mm. And it was like, it was the ultimate expression at that time of our, our religion, policing is a religion. 
Uh, and because of that ideology, they were so entrenched in defending themselves that they couldn't even grasp the, the, the horror of executing a 12-year-old boy on a playground in the city of Cleveland that's famous for a movie of a white kid playing with a BB gun mm. out in public. True. So, like, that was a real emotional break for me that kind of was a, felt like a bigger issue. And then when I really finally spoke, spoke was because all that came home and my distances were, were shot out because Freddie Gray was killed in Baltimore and it was in like where I policed with my police department, my union, people that I knew and they were defending it like there was some way possible that a man who didn't have anything illegal on him was thrown into a paddy wagon and taken out dead and like we don't have responsibility. Mm. The concept that we wouldn't have responsibility and that was so far flung from my idea of anything that policing <clears throat> should be that I just felt like I... I I couldn't even be like, even call myself a cop or call myself somebody that cared about society and the law without pointing out this level of tyranny. I think it's it's a fascinating one. I um, you remember, you know, growing up, you hear the stories um, and you see the LA riots and things with Rodney King and all this sort of stuff. Oh, hold on, let yeah. me say something. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yo, they burned down LA. And that motherfucker didn't even die. Well, that's the thing, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's how like complacent we've got. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. Like, it's just weird. Like, it, it. What I'm getting at, I guess, is like this thing keeps rising and falling, you know. And we're we're we are, I guess, taking objection to look at it because we can we just see it from a you know it's happening somewhere else and have another country. We don't really have sort of any sort of bias towards you know the left or right. Like, why does this thing keep coming up, man? Like, why is it why is it bigger now? Like, what? I just feel like there must be some sort of systemic like value within the police force or something there that maybe like gives rise to people, you know, being interested in becoming a cop that probably move towards this sort of thing, you know? Well, you do, but I think those things are relatively present in all of policing. Yeah. There is one thing that is incredibly unique about America, and I think you probably know what it is. Yeah. We're talking about guns? Saturated in guns. All right, yeah. And so I wrote a piece that was published in The Guardian um, called The Second Amendment is a Recipe for Police Killings. Yeah. And I, I need people to understand that... The whole concept of the Second Amendment, uh, like, uh, whether we get into the argument of what that is, and yeah. I have been in that gun control argument anymore, I just don't care about what people in the past said. Yeah. The reality right now is that we are in a society where what you are saying on one side of your mouth is that people like me are heroes and that we should be praised and we are the thin line that provides you freedom. Mm. But uh, your most important issue, and you will allow our country to be one of the most deadly places on earth of developed countries because you want to fucking kill me? What? Mm. That's insanity. Mm. Like, the whole purpose of the Second Amendment is so you can kill me, a soldier, and a cop. Like, I'm, I, like, I think you're going to win that battle for one. You're going to win that battle much better in the battle of ideas. All things are really battle of ideas and might make it right is always a temporary situation, and it's called tyranny. Mm. But 
ultimately, uh, it, the, the cop is afraid of the person having the gun. The, the, the person that's in the car stop is afraid of the cop because he has a gun. Mm. Not because he's a cop, but because if you, if you make a mistake, he'll fucking kill you. Yeah. You get away with it. Yeah. So that dynamic makes everything unique. Now, I think policing everywhere else is just as evil, but we certainly highlight it much more here because of the guns. The general principle of policing all around the world is there's three pillars, and that's like my scholarly argument. And uh, specifically in America is where I make the argument, but it's, it's relatively true everywhere. And that is police are they, – they, they create and maintain the oppressed classes, and then they extract resources from those oppressed classes to fund their own oppression. Yeah. And then they trick the actually oppressed into being the oppressors by removing their susceptibility to law, which looks like, you know, police don't get parking tickets and I, I had a good salary, things yeah. like that. The second pillar is the uh, evaluation of property over the lives of the oppressed classes. So now will you kill somebody to protect a CVS from a, 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 you know, a thug, whatever thug is in your community? Mm. You will. But would you use uh, the police to kill Bill Gates from burning down a CVS? No, you just simply wouldn't. So you, you value the lives of the, of the elite's property even over the, or the value of the elite's property over the lives of the oppressed classes. And then in America, it's the continued genocide of the Native American nations. Mm. And it's the same for you with the Aboriginal nations. And uh, over, you know, we almost every nation finds their oppressed class to, to fuel off of. Definitely. Like, we have a massive issue with um, what's going on with the indigenous population as well. But do you know what? This is something that I find quite fascinating is that, you know, a really big trait that leads towards fascism or that, that feeling, you know, that, that like removal of, of um, liberty is that, under, is that underlying um, sentiment of victimhood. And what you're describing and what I'm kind of getting at and from what I've researched is like you have two parties, you know, and this is not just America. This happens all over the world, you know, but with, with this particular issue, you have two sides where you have like one side that's like police brutality, police brutality, you know, this is ridiculous, you know, and then there's that real sense of victimhood. And on the other side, you have these people that truly, like yourself, you know, have been have been in there to serve and they want to serve and they want to do the right thing and they feel like everyone's having a massive go at them. So there are these two classes of people that feel oppressed and I just feel like that's creating a huge division in um in in that area, you know? And they're both mistaken. Yeah. So that's like, you know, like uh, one thing that Mark Twain said was that uh, those who are well-read are misinformed and those who are unread are uninformed. Yeah. So we, like we're it. always being manipulated by these these influences of power. And that's what we're supposed to be fighting against is power, not mm. thinking that the other is the thing. So mm. in America, I don't know. I mean, I can't really speak, obviously, for most other countries. But one of the reasons why I'm highly ineffective, I really think, uh, or at least it takes me a long time, is that the fight in America is to be the oppressor, not end the oppression. So it, that means you need to get on a side and paint somebody else as the other, which then you will dominate, which just then makes you the, 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 the tyrant. That doesn't change anything. It just switches the faces. Um, and so like when you said in policing, what I think that really they're missing the point because this is not about 
police officers. This is about policing the systems and the institutions. I really think that we got over a lot of our racial mm. issues in culture, but we didn't change the actual systems and the laws and the institutions and how they operated under that light. And that's the next step that we need to take. But the, like one example of why this is really bad is I wasn't racist. I had black friends growing up. Like the idea, my whole goal was to be colorblind. Yeah. Uh, I mean, which I think was a mistake being colorblind. I, I think was a mistake because it, it kind of blinded me from what was happening to people and where I was. Yeah. But but that whole idea is, is that I had no racist motivations, but because of the system, my actions were racist. Mm. So the thing is, is I don't care if a cop is racist. I care what the actions are, and that's what we need to focus on. And the, the job and the, insist, the, the incentives and the disincentives of the job and how people are paid and what they are, are doing versus what you think they're doing, we need to align those things up. So in like America, here's an easy example, is, is they say to protect and serve inside the cars. Nowhere yeah. is that a requirement in anywhere for cops to protect and serve anybody, yeah. period. So, I mean, that's just not what police are paid to do. Um, and so we have the idea that that's what they do, and they don't. So if we align those things where they are required to protect and serve by having civilians on top of them guiding that direction versus the tyranny of a local politician or something like that, then we can have long-term goals where we actually solve the things that are correlated with crime. Right now, it's literally impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fourth most, the fourth strongest correlate to violent crime is the actual presence of police. Policing is violence. You cannot reduce violence with more violence. Yeah. But it's also... I don't know where my thoughts going on that. So if you want to steer me back on course, go ahead. I don't even remember the original question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Michael, it's, it's almost like it's, it's someone... It's sad, right, that someone needs to, to win, right? And the fact that for us to win, we need to paint... Or I shouldn't say us... It's unfortunate that people think for them to win, they need to uh, paint someone down. They need to stand on top. They need to be more powerful. They need to almost shame them and, and point fingers at them that they are the, the problem. And this creates a whole fear-based selection of power. You know, if you ignite enough fear into people um, and blame someone else, people are going to move with that tribe who is the victor because they feel comfortable they feel safe and secure in a state of fear and unknown and so it's I don't even know where I'm going with that but it's um it's just interesting uh, from what you've been saying or from listening to what you've been saying that you're trying to solve the or you're trying to get to the context of these issues uh, but people are still stuck on the top layer of the content does that make sense yeah, and I would even say that they, they're, they're probably going further in the other direction, and I'll, I'll break that down with race. Uh, but what you were just saying right there, I say, uh, I'll, I'll quote myself, which is always you know quite a pompous thing to do. Uh, <laughs> I'm the best. <laughs> the quote that I have in the book is, people are more comfortable in familiar violence than in unfamiliar safety. Mm. So... Uh, that is what we do. It's like mm. we, we other, and then as long as we keep the other away, we feel safe. So mm. the domestic partner will feel safe in our house despite being abused because that abuse is familiar. And what we really fear is the unfamiliar. So to step out of that tribe is an incredibly difficult thing to do. And when there's only two tribes, it gets even more dangerous. So when you talk about the Second Amendment and the crafting of America, the other note that I had written down, 
was that John Adams, who was the main author of everything, his biggest fear in America wasn't the government, it was the two-party system. Uh, there's a, a quote I put on Instagram, so I wants to look that up, but it, it, it goes into what, what he said is that once you do that, then you have these two sides that are just trying to subterfuge each other, and then nothing gets accomplished, and everybody just tries to fight one another when we're supposed to be protecting America, mm. not liberal <clears throat> America or conservative America or any of those concepts. We, we need to be the human race. So, uh, like, that's why I think what I was saying, they proliferate the ideas. As if you other somebody, then you must create the categories. And the categories of division are what we use to justify the fighting when we all really want the same, the same underlying goals, period. So if you say, listen to me because I am black, I get in trouble a lot for this. And I'm like, guys, race is not real. Mm. So as long as you make yourself black and you categorize yourself into this othering group, then you are then saying that you are different and that's or right. less human or a different type of human yeah. from everybody else. So therefore, you're already sowing in this other rate. Yeah. We are the human race. Please fucking pick up a goddamn scientific journal yeah. and realize that race is a fabrication. Totally. I could not agree more. Like, I mean, you know, if you go back long enough, we're all fucking mushrooms. Like, we're all fungi three billion years ago, you know? Like, like when we're not even human beings back then, you know? But that's just what I know. It's just what happens. So... It's, it's interesting as well, um, in 1996, I think it was here, um, we had a, a Port Arthur massacre, um, just a, one of the worst, I think it was our worst, ma- our worst massacre. Um, and then we just had this um, huge, just take away the guns. And it just worked like, I mean, we haven't had a massacre since, I believe. Or we, uh, uh, you know, it's just been reduced so much, you know. I know we, we kind of touched on it before in terms of like, you know, why this issue is so prevalent because of the Second Amendment. It's, you know, people think like it's taking away people's rights and all this sort of stuff. But how do you feel? And I get, I mean, I think all of us three here, <clears throat> excuse me, are on like the same side of the argument here. But how is it so hard for people just to not even, I guess, see that guns could be an issue? You know, like I've heard like an argument say before, like, oh, you know, people are bad and they're just going to do bad things whether we have guns or not. But, like, it's so hard to throw a million knives at, like, four seconds when you can just get a fucking automatic rifle and just take away people, you know? I just I just can't see. What, I mean, what are your thoughts? Well, I think what we end up trying to do is trying to rationalise people out of an irrational position. Mm. And I don't think that that's really ever going to work. I mean, on the surface, it's readily true that what I say is the gun, guns and weapons, period, they make the weak strong and they get caught up in that, but they make the strong even stronger yeah. and they make the strongest impossible to stop. Mm. Now, if you think that America is so powerful and we have nothing to fear from other countries, why is that? It's because we're carrying the biggest sticks. So it is ultimately the idea that you want to be the tyrant. You want tyranny, which is completely against American ideals. But I think that we have a hard time breaking it down because it's the same barrier I hit with policing. I am not just telling, um, like... Professors in criminal justice, which I'm telling you is a religion and it has absolutely no data to support it. If you have a criminal justice degree, a PhD in criminal justice, you got a DA, a PhD in fucking imagination Mm. because there is no data to even base the field off of. Uh, Like an arrest is a measurement of a cop's activity, not a citizen's activity. Mm. When you say crime is this, you're not saying that. You're saying cops 
did this action called charging somebody for a crime. Mm. That has nothing to do with how many of those crimes actually took place. So I'm not just telling you that we need to change. I'm telling you that everything that you know is bullshit. Uh, you've been doing it wrong the whole time. And not only are you an idiot, so are your parents and so are your grandparents yeah. and so forth. But what we need the other people to, I want people to understand is to my great grandkids, what I'm saying right now, I'm an idiot. I'm uninformed compared to the amount of information oh, that they're going to have that time. For sure. So I think we're doing the same thing with guns, where there's a, it's a cultural <laughs> aspect. So not only are you saying that uh, the, it's not the best thing for society, you're saying we're saying that your society and your your choices of your culture are harmful to not just everybody else, but even you. The presence of your gun makes it more likely that your fucking kid will be killed by that gun. Absolutely. You're an idiot. So it only entrenches you deeper into that kind of ideal because we're trying to like rationalize somebody out of religion and and the gun culture and the policing culture are both religious ideologies that are are very difficult to get out through rational arguments that's just my bullshit guess though so where's the where's the light at the end of the tunnel because listening to that you i I went through a couple of waves i was really motivated and inspired and then you sort of ended off all going well what what's the point yeah you know i'm gonna get a gun we're we're up against two you know, it seems like uh, undefeatable uh, religions, right? And so, where is the light at the end of the tunnel for your grandkids? What's you know, what's in the next fifty to hundred years? I think that the the moral arc of justice, so to say, like King said, does bend towards justice all, all the time, or the moral arc of history bends towards justice. So every generation is always better than the next. Our our fears are probably completely unfounded, just like our parents were and the parents were before them. I remember people talking shit about Marilyn Manson, and it's just like, yeah. did you listen to any of his lyrics? No shit. They obviously didn't even bother to read a single lyric. Yeah, but he's wearing makeup. <laughs> right, I mean, that's Can it. you root King on Yeah. Any more makeup, so he must be scary and dangerous. I, I, mean, I get it. Yeah. So, but but to us now, I mean, now that we're, we're getting more authority and more power in the system, it's obviously going to be better. Yeah. Now, my daughter is thirteen. The idea that you can can convince her that a thirteen year old Syrian boy is her enemy, I find fucking impossible. Mm, yeah. So, absolutely. But like each time, we're going to get better, and we have these delays. And once you're aware, it feels like shit mm. because you're aware that like right now, every time that I, the, the less police that I convince to change or the, the more I butt up against this religion of policing, in my mind, that means another Tamir Rice is getting murdered at, at, at a rate of, you know, two or 300 a, a year because, you know, we kind of conflate those numbers, but the actual unjustified shootings are probably about two to 300 a year. Mm. And so that means I, my, my lack of success is allowing that to happen just to some level. And that feels, that feels painful, but we do keep getting better and better. Enough people do understand the Australia argument. Like you're saying, where it's, it's a harm reduction. And like, I hate the idea of guns being compared to knives for one, go ahead and fucking knife 457 people. Yeah. A fucking concert. Yeah, exactly. Not gonna succeed. And so it's always about harm reduction and what these things benefit you. So like a knife. Yeah. Like we're gonna accept that people get stabbed. Why? Because we like fucking steak. Yeah. And, and like honestly, we're all saying that us, uh, we're gonna accept enough a certain amount of people being stabbed so we 
can cut our state easily. Sure. But if you're going to accept 30,000 people being dead by handguns every year so that your little dick can feel a little bit yeah. good, we've got some problems. Well, it depends on how little the dick is, you know. But, I mean, sometimes you need a gun to turn a light switch off, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You know what this makes me think is that just there is just so much fear in the world, you know. And when you, when you made that... Um, you know, that analogy of um, your daughter, like, starting to fear a little kid from Syria, for example. Like, even that phrase, like, I remember, so I'm, I was born in 1993, and I remember growing up, I was like 11, 12, 13, when, you know, September 11 was a really big thing. And, you know, as with most families, like, my parents had the TV on and all this sort of stuff, and you hear 9-11, 9-11, and you, you keep hearing the war on terror, the war on terror, the war on terror. We've got to stop terrorists, terrorists, you know? And, like... I'm thinking about back to that now, you know, having grown up and cut literally all media out of my life, you know, it like that phrase is just like the war of fear, like terror, like that is such an intangible, like who the fuck are you fighting? What does that even mean? You know, how much do you think fear purpose? Well, yeah. (laughs) But you even, you look at kids, right? And they, they play with each other and it's, they, they have no, no fear against the other they just want to play because we're all one and then it's either the family or the culture and your little community that then breeds that fear or don't talk to that person yeah or or even something simple like um uh don't sip this hot soup because you'll burn yourself yeah like let the kid sip the hot soup and figure it out and figure it out himself yeah absolutely so what you just made me think of is, uh, like, I, I know I can get on high horses and I, like, don't want to. I'm always biting my tongue trying to, like, say shit that I know I shouldn't say in public. But I would always hear the stories, like, parents would be like, oh, my God, my daughter's afraid to go to sleep in the dark and the monster's in her closet. And I'm like, well, who the fuck taught her? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's not fucking real. Yeah. yeah. It's your daughter to feel monsters. Now your daughter is terrified because you're a fucking asshole or you're yeah. well, I mean, like, this is This is a problem, Michael. Like, that was taught to her and that was taught to somebody else. So like the basic mm. fundamental principle that I have, I talk about in my book, so I'll push it real quick, Crimes and Punishment in the 21st Century. You can find it everywhere and Audible will be releasing soon so you can listen to me talk about it. Uh, but I don't know why you want to do that because everybody thinks their own voice sounds fucking miserable. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, <laughs> Where is I even going with that? Mate, just your voice sounds miserable. <laughs> I'll leave it there. No, I'll take it, I'll take it. Before that, I had a point. We're talking about it. It's, you know... No, 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 no. no. Okay, so I'm back on track. So <laughs> the, the idea, I, I don't believe in free will or autonomy. And I don't think there's any science or evidence that support that we have free will. And that will make us say to ourselves, well, then what's the point of life if I'm not in control of my actions and if I'm just the equation of my DNA and my experiences, which we are. Mm -hmm. But what that means is that our actions then actually literally do play the influence in someone else's experiences and does change how they are. Mm. So the more experiences that are positive for the growth of society, then the more we're literally changing everybody else, even if it's subconscious. For sure. Yeah, I absolutely, I absolutely agree with that. Like, even even if you know, irrespective of free will, and then you can become an existentialist, whatever. Like, even if it, even if you take on that approach, 
like you matter to someone else, you know, and we have a right to make other people better around us, you know. You matter to every single person you interact with. Yeah. At some point in time, there was somebody. Okay, I'll give a personal example, even. Mm. So there was one time we were out at a restaurant, like a Chick Fil A or something like that. And I, I got teared up at my daughter's level of empathy here, but she saw somebody there that just for some reason looked like they were down. And being a thirteen-year-old girl, she went to like this twenty-year-old girl and. Gave Gave her a compliment and said something nice, and then that girl came back over later and said that how that changed her entire day, her wow. perspective on everything, and that was just a second of, of an interaction. Mm. Like how you conduct yourself with other human beings could not possibly be more important. For sure, I'll uh, just chip in. My girlfriend last week came home and uh, she had tears in her eyes, and just this story even now just still gives me goosebumps and makes me welt up. She was just down at our local supermarket and there was a uh, homeless guy out the front with a sign. And uh, and so she just went in there and, and bought him a couple of cans of tuna and a uh, banana and then gave him 10 bucks on the way out. And she sort of felt a little bit awkward doing it. And so she just sort of did it and run, uh, just did it and walked off uh, quite quickly and didn't read the sign at all anyway. She got in her car and as she was driving past um, on the main road, he was sitting there bawling his eyes out. And it's those little things that, uh, at the end of the day, everyone's human. And what you may think is such a small little gesture, even the way that you communicate to someone, like in your tone, there's been times in my life where someone's, you know, come up to me and go, oh, remember this time. It's like, no, I don't even remember saying that to you. But that's had a massive impact on their life. So the tiniest things that we can take for granted significantly can alter the uh, course of someone's life. Yeah, I think a lot of people hear us as saying that it's like we're better, but it's like it's, it's just be aware yeah. of, of this reality. And I we're not ever I, I'm just, I'm here. I am fucking speaking for you guys, but <laughs> it's, not, it's, not, it's not like we're saying that we're better or that we don't make errors in this thing. It's mm. just that being aware of it at all times will at least put us in, in a perspective and a mindset that will allow us to take advantage of situations that we could have passed up. Absolutely. Hey, uh, Mike, we might um, we might move towards um, three from... Do you, do you remember your three from three questions? No. We'll do three from three. We'll do three. We, we normally end the show with... Um, Six okay. from six, which is three questions from me and um, three what, questions. What about, what about the ones you sent me? I have my list yeah. uh, right here on the screen. Oh, you got them. You got them. Sweet. Yeah, cool. All right. I'll do, I'll, I'll do six from six, and I'll just keep pumping the questions at you, mate. <laughs> so, all right. What is your favorite travel destination, my friend? So far, the most beautiful place I have seen was hands down Hawaii. Um, I much hasn't competed with that from a visual aspect. Culturally, I really, really like Japan. Oh, nice. Right. Yeah. So um, those those would be my, my my two highlights. I haven't gotten to Australia yet. If you guys can find out a way to get me citizenship, I, I may just blow this joint. So. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we'll get you over here, mate. We're um, we're we're pretty big wheels here, so we. I mean, we know the government. You know. <laughs> hey, just a quick question on Japan. Why culturally? I've been there before, and I I absolutely loved it. Um, they're very very law abiding. Is <laughs> is that why you're you're lenient towards that? And why I say law abiding? We were. Um, they stand there, they're uh, trying to cross the road and there's no cars for days and they will still wait for the green man to tell them to go and meanwhile I'm sort of walking across because it's just sort of common sense to me 
and uh, I'm getting death stared. <laughs> However, I still loved their culture. What's your reason? Yeah, they're like, what in the fuck are you doing? Yeah. You're like, but there's, no, like, there's nobody there. Yeah, I mean, the the... So even if they're not happy and having a good day, they're going to do those things. A lot of these these ideas we're talking about are already in their culture, where they'll be courteous to other people and they'll follow those societal rules. I'm not I'm not a fan of law abiding uh, by any means. I'm a fan of moral behavior towards other human beings. I don't give a shit what the law says. I, I think you know if there's any role that police officers do have, it's in mitigating the stupidity of the law versus uh, you know reality of human nice. behavior. So. So I, I would say the same thing. I mean, with you, just the, the culture, the idea. I mean, I remember I got stopped, and, and they're not excessive. We had a marine that like got drunk and went ridiculous fighting the cops there. And for one, they didn't have guns, but there was like ten cops fighting this dude. <laughs> they had their sticks. You know, he's like six foot three, what American marine? So he's like twice the size of every single one of those cops. Yeah. But they were all just fighting him. Like there, the idea to them that they were gonna hurt him in any way that they didn't absolutely have to like you could tell it wasn't crossing their mind whatsoever um the train shut down at night uh, the the um the police go home at night <laughs> there's no police at three o'clock in the morning in mm-hmm. japan in tokyo so like wow. I, I had to sleep on a park bench uh once we get stuck out in tokyo as many dumb americans do and and like the idea that even if i would have if i would have dropped five hundred dollars and somebody a Japanese person would have saw it they probably would have came over picked it up put it in my pocket and went about their day like it is perpetual safety everywhere you go mm. fuck that's insane hey um what about your one place in the world that you would love to go to but you haven't been yet I'll go, I'll go ahead and stick with Australia yes I do not want to go with the cold anymore I'm fucking done with the cold that's why I live in Arizona now oh, yeah. I went Pennsylvania which is the north in the cold to I went to the Sonoran Desert I have scorpions in our house now because I'm <laughs> done with the cold yeah, yeah. let's have fires in our house <laughs> and I just jump in every now and then <laughs> and um, Michael what about um, a book that you could recommend mate apart from your own even though even though it's good but uh, yes um, a book that you could uh, recommend our listeners uh I should have been more prepared for a book, but uh, I'm going to cross over these two things with the person and the book thing. So I'm going to go with the book about Mother Teresa that Christopher Hitchens wrote. Oh, yeah. Uh, So it's small and it's easy to read, but the whole point of that Mm. is to give people... Uh, one of those step backs yeah. where like what have we imagined is reality and what really was the reality and I don't think there's a better case than Mother Teresa who was really fucking evil oh man you gotta break it down I know Christopher Hitchens is he was just so fascinating he, he was one of the most beautiful minds like oh, I could listen to him all day I love him but that would obviously be uh, my person uh, that I would say uh, it wouldn't be if, if I'm going with a role model I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll switch over to the corn subject so we can get into that in, in one, one mm. second real fast but yeah I mean if there's any one person I could ever sit down and talk to it would hands down be Christopher Hitchens yeah. and I, I completely am so happy that he died before Twitter yeah. uh, <laughs> so true like, I feel like I'd be like oh he's a fucking moron yeah. like, yes. <laughs> it's very true so, <laughs> So I'm kind of glad he's dead as much as I as, as I don't like not hearing him anymore. <laughs> um, so uh-huh. to jump in your question of like a role model, 
Uh, my arm is tattooed in corn tattoos. My arm is tattooed in corn tattoos. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the band. And um, one of the, the reasons, it has nothing to do with really the band. Um, it's because that was kind of the, the culture I was in. It marks time frames. And that was a band I'd always been with. So I remember like going to the store and buying CDs and stuff like that. So it actually like marks periods in history mm. of, my, of my growing up. But mm. one thing I definitely realized is that listening to the lyrics and listening to the way that Jonathan Davis, the lead yeah. singer of Korn, carries himself, he definitely redefined to me a certain level of what masculinity is. Because while by every means of what I grew up with as masculinity and how maybe I've been traditionally measured as masculine are the exact opposites of him. He would be uh, express his emotions, uh, be vulnerable, would never win a fist fight for his life, uh, like those kind of things. But there's that honesty and that care and that introspection and empathy for others, I think is a hell of a lot harder than being a dickhead. So yeah. that, like, being a man, a, a man is really something that he helped redefine as somebody that is, is a beneficial to society and being a protector it itself also doesn't mean being an ass. I mean, you can protect in a lot of different ways. That's fascinating. I love it. I think, you know, I did hear that, excuse me, Jonathan Davis used to get his, or I think for one of the albums he actually used to get his um, manager to beat the shit out of him to just go into such a dark hole that he could have right from such a from such a level you know that was just so connecting yeah that's his forte you know yeah embrace the suffering he probably does that to his own self-destructive uh, forte but i mean that's that's just destroying ourselves in a different way yeah. i think uh, i don't even want to say alpha males i really think that's a wrong way of phrasing it but yeah. but people that buy into that culture of uh i don't even want to say toxic masculinity god it's like a fucking social justice <laughs> yeah, <you do>. but, <laughs> Masculinity that we previously held, I think, is a very immature expression. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Even even if you go back another generation, Michael, to the Beatles, they were also the pioneers. The reason why they sort of cottoned on is because they they showed vulnerability through songs. They expressed their emotions through songs, and sort of up until that time, it was you know macho, macho, manly, manly type of stuff. So. It's slowly happening. It'd be interesting to see where it is all at in, say, 20 to 50 years' time. Um, with I think we've successfully uh, emasculated most of our younger men. Yeah. And that's, and that's what's going to be really interesting as well, you know, um, you know, who plays which or who dominates sort of the which the, the male or the female hormones. Yeah, my daughter, though, is, I, I mean, I constantly joke that uh, the way I see male males these days, or, or men right, is a better term to use in that case, uh, I, I have no desire to protect my daughter whatsoever. You guys have are going to be no match for this chick. You, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not afraid of you abusing her or anything. <laughs> the paradigm has been shipped uh, I love young it. teenagers. <laughs> I think it's so that's, that's exactly why we need guns. Then, yeah, true. <laughs> we made to protect ourselves from these damn women. True, it's true. But they lose their power of sex with VR. I don't know. We're gonna have real equality. We'll see how people feel about that. Yeah, yeah man. It's um, it's an interesting world we live in. Where like, you know, that those those roles are like they're they're, they're changing, and I, I think I think it's it's good in a way. Like, you know, what the feminists did in the seventies and eighties, you know leading towards, you know, true equality is great and we're kind of like swinging the pendulum a little bit too aggressively now. But what it does 
for me anyways, ask the question is, okay, well then how do you define masculinity within your own realm? And I think, um, masculinity is no longer defined by, you know, how many chicks you bank, like how much, how much money you've got, but it's like now I guess becoming defined through authenticity. And I think authenticity Absolutely. is very empowering and it's also very attractive to women or, or, or men, depending on what, you know, whatever you're into, like it doesn't matter whatever, you know, but it's, um, I think authenticity just for your own person to actually follow and pursue a life that you want to truly live is so like for, for someone who is an authentic male, when you see or interact with someone, they just have this like beautiful radiation of just happiness and purpose. And people want to be around that, whether it's for a relationship, whether it's for sex, like whatever, you know? So I think, um, the one thing that this like modern political front is getting us to do is like constantly think about where we stand. And I think when you really start to define your own individuality, like you're only going up, you know? Well, the science actually supports you actually. So authenticism yeah. is the, the literal word that is, is all throughout the scientific literature. Mm-hmm. And I, I've written about it a bunch of times that I truly believe as well that all the sciences point to the future being about authenticism being the preferred trait and the most valuable trait that anyone can have because a lot of our walls and perceptions are being torn down. The more we're trained, the more people can see the real us, hiding the real us yeah. is, is essentially offensive yeah. to them. Um, and so we respect the people that are truly that word authentic. And I think that's why Trump Trump is president. I, yeah. I personally don't have the problems with it that a lot of people do in this country, but it, it should be clear to be understood that this dude is president because he's authentic and he does things like where they're like, oh, he speaks like a sixth grader. But yeah, the average reading level in America is sixth grade. Fuck. So the dude speaking to his audience and being authentic, he doesn't care what you say about him. Mm. He's going to go out there and be authentic. And as much as even if you don't like him, like there are so many times where he has done something where I'm like, oh my God, yeah. this is, is something else but man was that good <laughs> like just because he was being true like you know the, the classic thing when he, he was debating Hillary she's like oh we can't have him be in prison and he's like I mean being be, uh, president he's like yeah because you has to be in prison it's like ah yeah. that authenticism is the future and is what people gravitate for mm. no matter how much the elitist or the media tell you that that's not true for sure yeah and um Michael we'll do um do me the last one um it's, uh, oh no, we've got two more, to, two more to go. Hey, what do you like to do when you have some uh, downtime, my friend? What do you like uh, getting up to? One of my biggest problems is that I don't do downtime. Yeah. Um, I am 38 years old, wrapping up my PhD. I'm already retired from one career. <laughs> like, uh, uh, I'm a perpetual overachiever because of the, uh, I guess, stigma probably and, and biases that I still have from growing up poor, that all of those check marks, marks in the box of success for some reason are something that I'm trying to impress people that I have no business trying to impress. <laughs> so uh, I, I think I, I do more too much working. Um, like my, my biggest thing that I've, I've loved since I got out of the police department and got to kick it back to doing is coffee and cannabis in the morning with my blank is the greatest thing that has ever existed <laughs> in human history. But I've even turned that into a podcast. Like, yeah. like fucking, like, just leave it alone. Like, enjoy something. I wish I could do that. So, like, I mean, I stay, I go to the gym and, and I'll stay in shape. But I'm doing that because, like, probably because I feel like other people think I should probably be in shape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good to hear you're authentic, mate. <laughs> Man, but, like, everyone else is doing the same thing. Just a lot of people are in denial. 
Yeah, I, I guess, you know, I would really like to step back at some point in time. I would a kid, like, I feel like if I could get police to be a point where people are focused on solutions and not about the histrionics of, of what it was, because you just got to understand the history and then change it. It just informs our decisions. Yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't fucking do anything. So once I can get people there and I can, like, eliminate some of my white guilt or police guilt or something like that, then I can go and move back all into my life and not give a fuck about anybody again. And I think that would be freaking awesome. Yeah. So, like, I feel like maybe I'm just, like, grinding, trying to be like, I got to get as much material out there so I can get away from this thing. For sure, yeah. And, Mike, finally, mate, if you could invite uh, three people to dinner, dead or alive, who would they be and why? Right now it's going to be Chris Hitchens and you two. Yes. Boom, killing it. Dude, we should have dinner. Get down to Australia. Well, how the fuck am I going to get to Australia? This is the problem. Just swim there. A lot of people also realize how big this world is. For sure. Like, whenever we're even talking about overpopulation, I'm like, you motherfuckers never drove anywhere. Like, <laughs> yeah. I drive from East Coast to West Coast in America, and man, there is a lot. Yeah. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And I mean, but you guys, you only have things like on your north coast, right? Yeah, we don't have much. No. <laughs> and we got snakes. We got lots of snakes. Lots of protein. <laughs> oh man, well it's been um it's been such a pleasure having you on the show, man. Finally, um, if there's anything you want to plug now, just um, tell the listeners a little bit about your book and um, where we can find you. Right, so the biggest thing that I'm doing right now is I'm kind of like focused hard on getting a lot of material out there. So on May 4th, the cheesy Star Wars date, of course, that's why I chose <laughs> to use it. Same we're launching a, a, a company called, well, we already have the company, but we're launching all the websites and stuff for a publishing company called iMember Media, like i, like an Apple phone and member media. Uh, com and that is where we'll have everything but I'm launching like five podcasts Fuck, and uh, I have my book out Crimes and Punishment in the 21st Century that's all philosophical if people want to get into the philosophies of it mm. and then all the podcasts we have different modes one is uh, technically not me but I guess you guys can know who cares <laughs> but so I do the Morning Blood podcast and I use a, a name called C Squared for that because of coffee and cannabis C Squared nice. um, that's cool so, man so that's just a short podcast of like quick thoughts of the day and dumb shit like that. And then I do a fo- one called follow up where I go back and try to dismantle all my old arguments. Um, oh, yeah. I have one called nuance that I do with a professor, uh, with a uh, former professor, a, a religion scholar, a journalist, friend of mine named Roberto Alejandro. And we have a whole bunch of episodes of that. Um, and if people can go look at all those examples or have them all up, that's the easiest thing to do. And uh, we'll try to find something for each each person that feels uh, a certain way and wants to approach it a certain way. And, and you're kind of reform metrics. I think no matter who you are, you really do want police reform, even if mm. you're small, like a conservative, you want small government. So like, I mean, I have podcasts talking the angles of small government versus the angles of socialism and, and all of those things. Because when it comes to how our police department should behave, we actually want all of us want them to behave the same way. We just have to codify that they will treat those others in that way that we want them to treat us. For sure. For sure. Mate, thank you so much. Pleasure. Pleasure thank having so a chat. Much. Get my ass to Australia. I'll come. Yeah. I do some pages. I'll be there. We yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll put like uh, Chris Bridges post picture of like, Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I'll, I'll, um, I'll buy you a boat. I'll put his head on the side of the boat and then I'll just pay for you to come down. Because I'm, you know, I mean, I've got a full-time job, so. <laughs> oh, mate. Classic. Good day, mate. Yeah. Very good. Shut up, idiot. <laughs> Get off of the show. <laughs> All right, mate. We'll speak to you later then, yeah? Thanks, Michael. 
Alrighty, team. Really hope you enjoyed that one. As I said in the intro, his book, Crime and Punishments in the 21st Century, Michael Jr. Wood. Really, really cool, exposing, elaborate. Um, any any word beginning with E. Um, head to his website as well. It's some really cool stuff. I, I was just having a read of his About page before, and um, it's a really good insight into um, why he's doing what he's doing and what he talks about. So that's michaelwoodjr.net. And then it's actually forward slash about, but michaelwoodjr.net, really cool stuff there. Guys, brought to you by Audible. So head to www.audibletrial.com forward slash ADVF radio to get a free credit on a monthly subscription for about 16 bucks. Head to trueprotein.com.au. Use the code ADVF for 10% off all subs there at trueprotein.com.au. And finally, guys, 10% off trips when you use the code radio at www.adventurefittravel.com. All righty, guys, we'll speak to you next week. Bye-bye.